0: Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. I am back after a brief break, travelling, and a huge thanks to James and Leslie for hosting in my absence. On the podcast this week, we're looking at India and the view of the world from New Delhi. This week marks three years since Indian and Chinese troops were killed fighting each other in the Himalayas along the contested border. Since then, ties between Beijing and New Delhi have gone from bad to worse. This week, India's last remaining journalist in China was asked to leave, a stark sign of increasingly cold ties. We'll discuss the current state of those relations and how concerned other countries should be. Also, we'll be taking a wider look at India's foreign policy, its ambitions there, the challenges it faces as it attempts to become a global power amid a very turbulent neighbourhood. We'll be looking at its relations with its key neighbours, the security challenges it faces, notably the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban, as well as its growing ties with the quad nations, Japan, Australia, the United States. Will the 21st century be the Indian century after all? I've got a terrific panel here. Very excited about this. Joining me on the show this week are three guests perfectly placed to discuss all these issues. In the studio here, sitting next to me, is Dr. Avenish Paliwal from University of London, SOAS. Welcome. Thank
1: you for having me here, Bromlander.
0: Absolute pleasure. Joining us down the line from New Delhi is Dr. Raji Pillai, the Director of the Centre for Security, Strategy and Technology at the Observer Research Foundation. A very warm welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me on this podcast today.
0: Again, a huge pleasure. And joining us from Nepal is journalist Amij Raj Mulmi, author of the book All Roads Lead North. Welcome to Chatham House. Thank you for having me, Bronwyn. Well, a great pleasure all round. Let us start then with this question that is hanging over this discussion, the tension between India and China. And Raji, I wonder if you could start this for us. How did this tension rise so much? How did these relations go badly given where they were some years ago?
2: That's a terrific question to start with. And from what we know, it appears to have been a deliberate effort by China, not an accident. Although the purpose and the reasoning behind the, the Galwan conflict is still unclear. Uh, some of the suggested reasons are, one, because of the, some of the domestic actions taken by India. Uh, a few years ago, India made some domestic political changes to the state of Jammu and Kashmir, separating into two states in a sense. But it is unclear why this should be a factor for China because it doesn't directly affect the claims on the border. The second reason that one has heard or seen in the narrative is that India's infrastructure development on the Indian side of the border only in response to what China has done in terms of the massive development over the decades. China has built excellent highways, railway lines, oil, and so on and so forth in both Tibet Autonomous Region and this around the Sino-Indian border areas, all of which suggest that today China has uh, plans not only to get troops on the border quickly, but to sustain them for reasonably long periods of time. And India is, in a sense, only responding to this, but this seem to have created some sort of a, a problem with China because China clearly does not want India to address the infrastructure development gap that exists today because India has a huge uh, lag in terms of the infrastructure development. We did not focus on the infrastructure development till about a couple of decades ago. Rajiv, can,
0: can I just ask you, you're talking about infrastructure generally over the whole country, not just on the no, border.
2: No, this is about precisely about their border areas. On the about Sino-Indian the border. border. Yes, on the Sino-Indian border. So the infrastructure development that India has undertaken on its side of the border also seem to have irritated, created some sort of irritation uh, with China. So that's part of the second problem that I keep hearing about. third important uh, issue that I've I, that I seen so far is that India is getting far too close to the U.S., but that's not entirely true. In fact, uh, mm-hmm. India distanced from the U.S. at various points even in recent years on account of possible Chinese reactions. For instance, after the Doklam incident, or the conflict in 2017, India had slowed down the pace of relations with the U.S., with the Quad and so on and so on. We would not even call it the Quad, for instance. Instead, we would use this complicated formulation to say that the U.S., India, Japan, Australian grouping met and so on and so forth. So there was, a, and of course, there was a major crackdown on the Tibetan activities. So the government did everything to sort of make sure that we did not create any problem with China, we were extremely sensitive to the China relationship and did everything to make sure that we were able to strengthen the relationship after DOKLAM. We had two informal summits. There was a talk about resetting the relationship, etc. But at least some of the some of us wrote even at that point of time and during DOKLAM and thereafter that this is the kind of Chinese behavior that one should be prepared for. But many wanted to believe that Doklam was more of an aberration, but that was not really the case. Yeah.
0: Thank you. You've taken us in a marvelous sweep through some of the practical things happening on the border and this infrastructure, which is both a provocation to India, but also a symbol of just how fast things are changing. And you've taken us right through some of the shifting international allegiances, for example, the U.S. coming into the picture. Avinash, do you agree with that sort of sense of motivations on the Chinese and the Indian side about about these latest clashes?
1: I do think this is not a not an accident. I do agree with Raji, and she was very right in kind of you know laying the ground in terms of the causality of that crisis. Uh, twenty twenty is when the two sides literally made contact in a very kinetic sense. Soldiers of the two sides literally killed each other with clubs because they have rules of engagement, which does not allow using weapons. But that was not the first time where, this, when the standoff happened in 2017 around Doklam, and even before 2013 in Chumar. There, are, there have been a series of standoffs at the border. So clearly the border has been heating up over a period of decade or more between China and India. But I think what I would add to Raji's very important points is the larger regional play in which India finds itself and the way China has behaved. Now, the fact that India and China have been at odds is a fact since 1949 when Mao came to power, and especially after 1959 when the Tibetan uprising happens, leading to a war between the two sides in '62, a deep freeze till the 80s, and then kind of a sort of a thaw during the 90s and 2000s. But what changes this dynamic is the fact that apart from the China-India-Pakistan trilateral, which has always been stressed uh, and full rife with tension, the fact that India began to increase exponentially, steadily, surely, its economic and political sort of presence in other South Asian countries, in other neighbours of India, right, from Bhutan to Nepal to Bangladesh, Myanmar, most certainly, even Sri Lanka and Maldives, right? This is really what begins to make India uncertain in a larger strategic sense, which is which goes beyond just the boundary, the traditional boundary dispute between these two countries. The fact that uh, there is huge infrastructural investments happening within the rubric of what we know as the Belt and Road Initiative, whether or not that succeeds in reality, whether or not it generates economic return, was actually a secondary point. The fact that the Chinese were willing to invest that kind of money, uh, which often did translate into elite capture uh, and kind of politicizing local local politics against India or the anti-India narratives that we saw emerge both in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and Maldives, which, you know, these are countries which traditionally have had a love-hate sort of a relationship with New Delhi, given the fact that they see New Delhi as a hegemon. And for some good reason, uh, if you look at it, look at the history of this region, China began to exploit that in conjunction with a steadily worsening border situation. This really made, you know, this really created a strategic dilemma for India that your capability, question both economically and militarily, is actually relatively decreasing in terms of, you know, Chinese growth. China is becoming powerful in all segments of national power, whereas you are not being able to match that. So what do you do? You start working with allies, or you start working with countries who you believe to be partners in a larger global sense and you start to reassess whether this region, which you have considered as your backyard traditionally, is somewhere where you need to start working with countries which are extra-regional powers, which you have traditionally shied away from. Like,
0: Like which countries?
1: Countries like Japan, countries like United States of America, European powers, Australia is there there has been historically there's been evidence that India was not very willing to partner with Western countries
0: Uh, and and in your view that is changing because of this consciousness of now this, this huge geopolitical rival in China I think
1: both consciousness and compulsion but I would be cautious in you know, uh, assessing this as a fundamental shift. I think there is still, India still sees itself as a power. It still sees this area, the largest subcontinent as its own backyard, historically, its own in, in terms of its perception as a power. But at this point in time, it believes that working at odds with, you know, as Raji mentioned, the quad allies in these regions is not perhaps strategically prudent. So you do engage, you do coordinate, you do talk about these things, you work with the Japanese more closely in Myanmar or, for instance, Bangladesh. Uh, But... Would that always be the case moving forward? I'm not so sure. But for now, that is certainly, you know, you can see demonstrations of those, that shift happening over the past few years.
0: Amish, how does this look? Uh, You're sitting in Nepal and this picture of other countries in the region looking at this rivalry growing and themselves deciding how to position themselves.
3: Uh, It's not good. I will, as Avinash said, right, like, I mean, one of a large part of, let's say, India's, let's say, anxieties in South Asia with respect to China also stems from how in the last two decades, in the 21st century particularly, China began using its political as well as economic influence in South Asia. So a lot of, let's say, what India is doing or India intends to do is also a reaction initially in in the first, uh, let's say, uh, decade or so, the 21st century, there was the sort of belief that, okay, perhaps you can uh, negate Chinese influence inside South Asia. But now increasingly, there seems to be a sort of a understanding that, all right, China is here to stay in South Asia, but how can we reduce or at the most, let's say, contain that influence as much as possible? And especially in Nepal, where our only two neighbors are China and India. And I think it's getting more and more difficult for us to balance our ties. Nepali policymakers actually, in fact, just about like, uh, 10 years ago, thought of trilateral cooperation between the three countries, or perhaps even the two plus one model of cooperation India, China, plus Nepal. So, we designed longitudinal highways, north south highways, as transit highways between India and China. We planned industrial parks uh, with Chinese investment intended to serve, let's say, the Indian market. We planned hydropower projects like that. But the sharpening contest between these two countries, our two neighbours, means that Nepal has had to be more and more careful about balancing ties between it, between them.
0: How does it do this? Is it worried about China also encroaching on its border? Does it have an incentive to get on better with India, as Avanish was describing? Also
3: on the border with China, see, now see there are two views on this, right? A couple of years okay, during the pandemic, a uh, member of parliament accused China of encroaching the border in his home district, which is in the northwest. But the Ministry of Foreign Affairs refused uh, refuted his argument, refuted his uh, accusations. But a home ministry study then later did find unilateral construction on the border on part of the Chinese. But whether the border has actually been encroached is really not clear. So, but what's happened is that. The Himalayan on our side is relatively dif- difficult to access. There's a lack of infrastructure and state capacity on the Nepali side. So China is currently imposing unilateral border controls. So both during the pandemic as well as after the pandemic. So let's say land border points are le- operated along, uh, let's say, China's decisions. or the border points are closed or opened as per China's let's say calls. So I think Nepal is very little in how the border is being managed with China. That's a very different, let's say, border vis-a-vis India, which is an open border, perhaps the only open
0: border, a uh, uh, few open borders, I think, in any part of the world. That's really interesting. Raji, you mentioned the U.S. very very briefly. Where does it fit into this picture?
2: The U.S. is one of the closest strategic partners that we have. Uh, but the China, of course, uh, finds ways to uh, blame the U.S., of course. China keeps saying that it is the U.S. that is driving a wedge between India and China and so on and so forth. But it is because of the Chinese pressure that India keeps getting closer to the U.S., not the other way around. And in fact, India was never uh, good uh, in terms of developing a close relationship with uh, the U.S. for a very long time, much of the history, if you want, looks at it. But today we have deepened that strategic partnership that in ways that was not conceivable even a couple of decades ago. And Prime Minister Modi is, of course, heading to the U.S. for a state visit, again, one of the rare uh, occasions where a state visit happens. And he's hoping to sign a number of agreements in the strategic and different sectors. And the U.S. is absolutely critical for India. There's no no doubt about that. In terms of the different aspects of the relationship, one of the critical aspects that the U.S. is very keen on, and India increasingly is is on defense items, uh, defense technology in a sense. We have already done defense trade worth uh, 20 billion a couple of few years ago, Um, And I think probably a lot more is going to happen after the uh, Modi visit. Similarly, the other area that we have done a lot with the uh, U.S. is in terms of the military exercises. These exercises have been far more complex and sophisticated because India does joint military exercises with a number of different partners. But the kind of exercises that India has been part of with the U.S. has been fairly sophisticated and very, very complex missions. So it has come a long way, and we do engage with various through uh, the different proposals have been floated to uh, strengthen the defense and security cooperation between India and the US. Uh, in the past, you have had the DTTI, for instance, the Defense Technology and Trade Initiative. It did not go very far. It did not deliver and all the various promises, but the, the fact is that the political leadership in both countries did not give up because the DTTI failed in some ways. And therefore, you in recent months, uh, you did have the ISET, uh, the Initiative on Critical and Emerging Technologies. And this is not just about the critical and emerging technologies such as cyber, uh, artificial intelligence, quantum and so on and so forth. But it does deal with uh, conventional defense technologies as well. And that's a critical aspect of the ISET. So there is a great deal that, is, that can happen uh, going, f- in, going, up, going forward. Nevertheless, India has some amount of wariness about embracing the U.S. Uh, full on as a partner, and therefore we tend to dilute it with other partnerships. I was thinking
0: as you were talking about just how much Indian representation and influence in in, in Congress on Capitol Hill has grown uh, in the past 20 20- 30 years um, from, from a very low point to you now something really quite substantial. I just want to ask Avinash, at this point, I'm struck we have got this far in this discussion, albeit we're focusing on India and China at this point. Without, we haven't mentioned Pakistan uh, at all, which um, used to be almost the first thing one would talk about in, in terms of border conflicts with, with India. Where does um, the Pakistan fit in?
1: Bronwyn, the withdrawal of native forces from afghanistan in august 2021 and the fall of kabul to the taliban is a watershed moment at multiple levels and i think the implications of that are still being felt and being assessed by regional parts and the people of afghanistan and the taliban themselves especially
0: pakistan you've written very widely about india's role in afghanistan i, I just i really want to dig into what yes. you think about this
1: pakistan's strategic value has decreased since that moment in american policy making simply because it, a country which was a frontline sort of an ally but also an adversary in some some ways during the Afghan war that, that that relationship is not required it's not needed so the investments have gone down the value of Pakistan has reduced to very specific counterterrorism operations across the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan and the fact that you know you want to have some degree of stability economic and political in Pakistan so that it does not continue to export uh, sources or elements of extremism or instability in both in the region and beyond. And I think in that sense, America, a capital hill generally White House, I mean, they've taken a strategic decision that in the subcontinent, their main strategic anchor is India, because the main strategic threat is China. And on China... Pakistan cannot deliver, even if it's so wishes. Yes, there is a debate of whether you can wean Pakistan away from China. But given how acute the crises, both political and economic, uh, that Pakistan is facing right now, we have seen moments where uh, the, the uh, you know, the house of the Lahore Corps commander was, was breached, the crackdown against Imran Khan and his party is at its peak. And, you know, this is something which is in some ways precedented, but also qualitatively very unprecedented the, the scale and scope and the depth of crackdown that is happening in Pakistan. So this is where it leaves Pakistan. It's it's isolated in some, some sense it's isolated, right? For India also, till the time there is a ceasefire at the line of control in Kashmir, and there is some degree of, ha- you know, cross-border militancy is within Uh, the scope of something that Indian forces can handle. I think this is something that is not really a stumbling block. Americans and Indians see eye to eye as far as Pakistan goes. So this is where we are. Of course, that can change tomorrow, Brahman, because this is such a fragile relationship. No one wants to talk about it. But tomorrow, God forbid, if there is a standoff between India and Pakistan on the border, which no one can uh, guarantee that it will not happen, then suddenly it will come back onto the agenda with the ferocity that we have seen before.
0: And we have definitely seen that. I want to use that as a pivot to t- talk about our second um, uh, flank of this question and more widely about India's foreign policy, because we've all been describing here um, a lot of shifts over a very short amount of time, really, in these relationships and some changing very dramatically. Avinash, I, I wanted to just stay with the point. Uh, you've been talking about Pakistan, but just move a tiny bit and uh, talk about Afghanistan and India's role in that, which which you have been. Writing about. And India invested a lot, didn't it, Um, after the US led uh, invasion of Afghanistan into a particular vision of the future of Afghanistan and then was confronted, as many were, including Afghans, with this very abrupt reversal and, and with the Taliban back. How has it responded to that particularly and to the now the installation of the Taliban again?
1: I think that is one country, Afghanistan is one country where you have seen quite a remarkable bounce back from Indian diplomacy, broadly put, right? This is a country which never believed in the Taliban, which never wanted to see any form of Taliban come to power, but had to accept the realities, as you said, like the world at large. Uh, within a span of... And India did lose out because it had to shut its embassy fully. And And it had
0: invested in every way, a a lot in that. Exactly. A lot
1: of developmental projects, a lot of small developmental projects, capital investments, political investments in a lot of different figures of the Islamic Republic, the erstwhile Islamic Republic. But I think once it realized that there is a new reality that they have to confront, uh, it actually did shed a lot of its hesitation, a lot of its reluctance in engaging with the Taliban. And I think There there is a wider, longer kind of secret history of India's outreach to the Taliban, which has not really been understood. Both sides have maintained some degree of contact, even if there was no trust between the two sides. And you saw that those nine months Really take that conversations from the scope of you know back channel or backstage conversations to the front stage so much so that India has a you know a considerable footprint a technical footprint is what it calls officially but it's a it's it's a considerable diplomatic and intelligence footprint in Kabul and from what I do know is the fact that the Taliban across factions including the Hakani network which targeted Indian missions in two thousand eight two thousand nine is willing to do business with India. And the reason for that, the causality for that, Bronwyn, is this is a regional dynamic between India, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Whoever is in power in Kabul historically has wanted to assert some degree of autonomy vis-a-vis Rawalpindi and Islamabad. And that triangular dynamic of what I call in my book the my enemy's enemy element is playing out in a very classic age-old fashion.
0: It is age old, but as we know, it, my enemy's enemy is not a recipe for stability or predictability. That's which means I'm sure we're going to come back to that particular, really fascinating one, Raji. I wonder if you could just broaden out for us, um, just the, the big questions in India's foreign policy at the moment. We've been talking, obviously, about about China, but it is showing the country showing its ambitions, and we've been talking about these possible ties with uh, more ties with the U.S., with Japan, Australia. We haven't talked about Russia. How, how does this wider picture look to you?
2: Russia is a big puzzle uh, to some of us, at least Uh, Russia continues to be, of course, uh, an important player for India, important partner for India, at least that is the establishment view um, and that we cannot abandon Russia because it's been an old partner. Uh, But in my own view, in my personal view, relations with Russia have been going through some important changes, some difficult uh, points have been, uh, we have been going through that, uh, which India does not um, entirely acknowledge and... uh, one of the reasons for me uh, as to why that relationship is uh, need to be need some review and uh, need some possible changes is because of the growing Russia-China ties. A uh, growing Russia-China ties, significant military uh, that has a uh, sort of a military and defense component, and that is that is a consequential one for India, affecting the material um, sort of a balance or the military balance between India and China in significant ways. Uh, for a very long time, Russia used to give India the best of technology. There was also the technology transfer, uh, which was not the case with with China. But that changed in the, in the last 10, 10 years or so, so especially since uh, um, uh, the uh, Ukraine conflict in 2014 started. Since then, the Russia-China com- uh, dynamics has changed. China Russia is much more... Um, sort of uh, much more sensitive to how the China relationship is being developed and what needs to be done. For, for Russia, China has become the number one player. And the kind of uh, arms trade, defense trade transaction that Russia is making vis-a-vis China, it has important material consequence for India. And to give an example, um, uh, the advanced kilo class submarine uh, sale has happened between Russia and China. Uh, sale of advanced uh, fighter jets, at the Su-35 platform. India buys the ha- India has bought Su-30 MKI and we deployed on the Sino-Indian border. And now Russia has gone on to give the much much more advanced platform to ch- uh, to China, um, affecting the military balance between China and India, even on the border areas. So in a sense, it does have significant consequences from a national security point. But that's a point that the Indian side is not willing to entirely acknowledge and work on it but India believes that abandoning Russia would push Moscow to Beijing completely in my, in my view it has happened already and India has yes. very little, little very little leverage to change that outcome
0: yes no 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 nor do many other countries and as, as, as you're absolutely right in in identifying that that alliance has has strengthened including over um Ukraine and so on just want to come to, to Amish now we're describing this picture of India Playing all these relationships, changing some of them very quickly. Does this feel in any way stable to you, or does it sitting in in Nepal? Does it feel uh, potentially very risky? I think as a
3: small country, it, there is always this sort of awareness. There is there is always an anxiety, especially when something like Ukraine happens. Right. Uh, uh, so immediately after the Ukraine crisis, you could see that Nepal aligned with the U.S. and the Western, let's say, agenda you know, at the United Nations, seeking let's say like status quo. Uh, of the Ukraine thing, so I think these uh, uh, a difficult global, let's say, like scenarios like these will always make smaller states more wary, and especially in South Asia now, with India-China ties becoming more and more uh, like going sharper, there is a lot of cause of concern. Uh, there is there is concern also because, like I said, like I mean, as a landlocked country, we have to balance ties between the two. Uh, between the two neighbors, and it's getting more and more difficult because now India will not buy power from uh, hydropower projects where China has invested. India is refusing to entertain air connectivity to two new international airports, both built by Chinese companies. So with things like these, it's, it's getting more and more difficult for sure.
0: And what are the things that Nepal is doing to try to preserve its own uh, stability and its own room for maneuver, in in, in you know in, in trade, in normal life?
3: No, so one so one of the things I think that most Nepali policymakers recognize is the fact of geography, right? Like uh, with, uh, most of ninety percent of our trade occurs through India. All India is our biggest trading partner. So I think there is there is a sense that all right, I mean, if let's say the situation is going to get more and more tense uh, between the two neighbors, for us. It may be best to stay away from the larger conflict and try our best to negotiate in however uh, little ways that we can. So, for example, uh, in terms of hydropower, now uh, India, now Nepal is actually being very wary of awarding new hydro projects to Chinese companies, especially if the project is intended to export. You know? And perhaps uh, what we may also see is that if Chinese companies are investing in hydropower projects in Nepal, they may only be for domestic consumption and like Indian companies or other international companies are building the larger hydro projects that are intended for export so we may see these things happen in the future but again I mean our our larger hope is that Thai will sort of calm down a bit between the two neighbors That would be the best solution for Mm. Uh that.
0: Yes, and for many other countries as well, possibly, (laughs) including uh, for people in India and China. But we can't can't wave a wand on on that one. We're coming towards the end of this podcast. And I wanted um, to bring the three of you together on one... One question, which is in a way you know, a big rhetorical one, of whether this is going to be an Indian century uh, even more than uh, perhaps a Chinese century. But the reasons that people are talking about this particularly at the moment India, is now the most populous country in the world as far as people can measure it, uh, something happened around this year. Uh, China's population now declining uh, despite the government's exhortations. Um, and Obviously, China's uh, influence are, we, we've been touching on in this podcast extends you know, right around the world. But India, as we've been describing for the past half hour, is flexing or, and exploring all these relationships, has managed to change and build some of them um, very considerably within just a matter of years. And um, I would love your, your views on just how you see uh Indian ambitions at this point and what you think is realistic? Is this going to be an Indian century? Let me start with you, Amish.
3: In terms of being, whether this being India's century, I think the possibility is certainly there. I mean, in the same way that, let's say, uh, till, till from the 1980s onwards, everyone in the West was talking about Ch- China being the next Asian, let's say, like being, or the next superpower of sorts. I think India is well on its way. There are, there are certain... Uh, the, uh, improvements that it needs to make, especially in terms of infrastructure uh, where it needs to catch up. But from a Nepali perspective, I'm pretty sure that Nepal wouldn't mind <laughs> if it's an Indian century. Because, of course, like, I mean, in terms of there is, there's a lot of economic connectivity that's happening with India, there's a lot of power trade, uh, like I said, power trade, uh, highways, new rail networks that are being developed with India. And new uh, water uh, waterways as well, then are ripe for like let's say your u- uh, utilization as well, but there would obviously be concerns. Especially, uh, there would be a concern, especially because there is a current border dispute and there is a bit of acrimonious, let's say, like tensions in the past as well. So ties have relatively stabilized uh, in the past few years. The border issue does remain contested, mm. but there is a sign of progress in that the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi recently acknowledged there was a border dispute and it would be resolved through the right channels and his press statement during Nepal's Prime Minister visit. So that, uh, that, I think, will remain a cause of concern on the Nepalese side, right. but in terms of whether, like, yes, I mean, connectivity, I, the more regional connectivity in South Asia, I, I would argue that Nepal would want that to happen.
0: All right. So thank you for that uh, beautifully expressed uh, vote of cautious uh, support, be it acknowledging some (laughs) concerns. Raji, uh, just briefly, an Indian century?
2: Uh, I'm not as optimistic, even the cautious optimism. I don't have that really. Uh, one, of course, it's difficult to predict with any certainty. But uh, OK, of course, China has got internal problems. But India has its own kind of challenges. Um, and I think the biggest issue comes from the fact that the capacity, la- lack of capacity, Um, So that is going to stymie Indian efforts, Indian ambition. India is not short on uh, ambitions, but whether it matches with the reality on the ground, whether it has the capacity to kind of uh, uh, sort of uh, play those kind of ambitions or not in the longer term, I think that's going to be the issue. China has been, China has raised this particular point because of its economic capacity in a sense. And even though India is a growing economy and it's one of the fastest growing economies at this point of time, but unless India sustains a high growth rate for a decade or so, India cannot do much for itself or for others. Um, Chinese economy may be slowing, but the gap, gap between India and China uh, is significantly large and consequential. So I am somewhat more uh, uh, pessimistic in terms of whether this is going to be an Indian century. India is, like I said, not short on ambitions, but whether it matches with that rhetoric in terms of the uh, uh, the material capacity, because that is a foundation for you to play yes.
0: your you know, play your role. So thank you very much indeed for making that point. And thank you,
1: Avinash. I'll add to Ruddy's caution, Ron, when these macro indicators big growth rates economy growing ease of doing business economic investment western countries wanting to see centuries of asian countries uh almost desiring it for their own reasons i i am skeptical about this india's the fact of india's daily political life is that religious polarization is at an unprecedented high uh, you're you're dealing with hindu nationalists nationalists who are ideologues in power and that has increase the insecurities of a very sizable minority across the country. That's something that we cannot overlook. It is having implications not just for the country's own political and societal health, but also in the neighborhood. You can see countries such as Pakistan, Afghanistan, Bangladesh being very wary of what it means, what greater India means, right? And I mean, if you also look at growth and development from bottoms up, Think about it. India is actually encircled not by the Chinese, it's encircled by crises from Pakistan to Afghanistan, from Myanmar to Bangladesh, uh, depolarization in Bangladesh, right? It's not an economic miracle many thought it to be. Sri Lanka had recently imploded. Nepal is iffy. Bhutan is unsure. Maldives, you don't know which direction it is going. So I'm really not sure where this confidence Uh, is coming from. Yes, India is growing. But, you know, given the diversity of this country and the scale of challenges it faces from China, but also within, I'm not so sure. Manipur, which is a northeastern state of India, is right now in the midst of a mini civil war. And I don't use that word uh, without respect for what it means to call something a civil war. So there are questions.
0: There are questions and there are warnings, and you've made them very clearly. And while we've been focusing in this podcast on India's foreign policy, and so we haven't touched on these points about conflict within in India, you're absolutely right to make the point about the peak of our religious conflict that we're seeing at the moment and the implications of that for India's own stability, its governability, and indeed, if you took it to the commercial domain, for whether or not companies choose to. Try and relocate there. All of those things that we will spend actually a great deal of time on this year as we are developing our coverage of India and the region. We are going to have to stop there. So, a huge thank you to all my terrific guests Raji Pillai, Avinash Paliwal, and Amish Raj Mulni. Do follow them all on Twitter. The links will be in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe. Please do leave us a review. And to read more from all of our experts and people who work with us, to find out more about our events. We have lots of those every week. Or to become a member, and we would love to have you. Don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org, where you can find the work of all of our programs. Next week, with the NATO summit fast approaching, we're going to be turning our eyes to the UK's role in Europe. But for now, goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. Thank you for listening.